Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. If you are new or visiting, thank you for joining us this morning, and I hope that you do feel welcome. Please remember to swing by and talk to somebody on your way out. I know the temptation to just run out. That's how I roll, too. Um, But I want to challenge you not to do that, um, because there's a bunch of people here who are worth getting to know and would love to get you to know you better and also to connect you to the life of the church. So thank you for being here. We know it's hard to um, be new. It's hard to come into a church. You're not really knowing what you're going to expect or what you're going to get. And so thank you for taking that chance this morning. Um, we hope that you meet God and that God meets you here through our service and through the people of this church. We are going into Psalms for the summer. And the Psalms, um, I don't know. I have a complicated relationship with, I think. I know that I'm supposed to really love them, but sometimes they're hard. And so I have actually had to write down some rules for myself when I'm reading the Psalms, and I'm going to share them with you. They're not perfect, but they're generally pretty good because they'll help you understand them. So the first rule is that you are not David. You are not David. Second rule Jesus is David. Third rule, you belong to Jesus. So, so much of the book of Psalms revolves around the life of David. And so if you forget for a minute that you are not David, you're going to start drawing some false conclusions about about the Psalms. And you'll kind of just skip right over the whole point of the Psalms, which is to bring you to Christ to bring you into an encounter with the anointed king, the savior, the Messiah. And then when you have that encounter, oh, okay, now I see how this applies to me. Now I see how this becomes mine, how these prayers become my prayers. And so get used to that rhythm Um, It takes discipline because all of our lives in this culture is everything is about you. Everything's about you individually. And so this is disruptive in that it kind of shakes us loose from that habit and teaches us a new habit. And so we're going to jump into that together as a church. Psalm 3 is the first psalm after the introduction So Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to the book of Psalms. And Psalm 3 is a lament. And I think that that's really important for us to know and to hear. Because what it's communicating is that in the beautiful context of Psalm 1 and 2, where you see this blessed man, this blessed man figure, who the Lord proclaims as righteous, who makes, he makes him fruitful, he makes him blessed, the blessed man and the anointed king, who has been anointed by the Lord, who has the ear of God in Psalm 2, who with God laughs at the schemes of the wicked, that same figure is now the figure in Psalm 3 that laments that cries out, that's in pain, that's meeting opposition, 
that has real doubts that goes to despair. And so the Psalms are acknowledging this reality that so much of our prayers happen in the context of a world that creates a need for us to lament. And I think that's important for us to just think about and say, this is what God intended. He wanted us, the first psalm after the introduction is lament. It's not just glossing over the difficulties that God's people face in this world, but it's an acknowledgement. It's a crying out. It's meeting God in the neediness of our weakness. And so I'm going to go ahead and read for us Psalm 3, just giving you that information that it's a lament. And one of the things to know about the Psalms is that the little superscriptions, so that some of them, some Psalms have them, others don't, but those are also original. And so they are inspired by the Spirit to be written down and are helpful to us in understanding the Psalm. And so this one has a superscription. It is Psalm 3, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And then the rest of the psalm reads this way. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked." Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning um, probably a little bit dazed, a little bit distracted. Maybe we come this morning in despair. Maybe we come this morning and we don't need any orientation to the brokenness and the pain that exists in this world. And so, Lord, we, your people, sit before you and we need you to speak to us through your word. We need you to lift us up. We need you to remind us of what is true, to look past our circumstances, past what seems obvious, and look to your promises. Look to you, Lord. And so I ask that this psalm this morning would help us do that, that it would stir in our hearts a longing for fellowship with your son, a longing to know him, a longing to meet him, even in the midst of our suffering. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this psalm is really um, pretty easy to understand. It's not difficult. It's not tricky. It wants you to rest in God's salvation. Rest in God's salvation. And so as it moves through and progresses as a poem or as a song, 
we see that it first describes the restless world in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 3 and 4, and it bleeds a little bit into 5 and 6, we see the God of rest. So it takes us from the restless world to the God of rest. And then it concludes by showing us the gift of rest. So that's how we're going to move through the psalm to understand how we are to rest in God's salvation. So first, the restless world. This restless world. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for you in God. Many, many, many. It's overwhelming. That's an emphasis that David is putting in here, that there are overwhelming odds in opposition to him. So that's pretty bleak, but it gets way worse when we think of who the enemies actually are. And we have to be reminded that this is a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so we're going to go a little bit into the history of David and his family history, which is messy, in order to help us understand the amount of despair that he's actually facing here, how hopeless his situation really is. It's pretty bleak. So Absalom is David's son. David has a lot of sons. He has many sons, and um, he was not a one-woman man. And so he had a lot of sons with a lot of different women. One of these other sons... Amnon, who he had with a different woman than he had with Absalom, took a liking to Absalom's sister. So like stepsister, the family tree's complicated. Amnon ends up raping Tamar, who is Absalom's sister. Absalom gets really angry, obviously, wants to defend his sister, wants to avenge her. And so he plots to kill Amnon, and he does. The problem with that is that when you kill and assassinate one of the king's sons, who's, especially one who's closer in the line to the throne than you are, that's a hostile act against the king. Absalom knows this, and so he goes on the offensive. He raises up people from within David's own court in Jerusalem and starts chasing after David to kill him. So what does David do? Well, David remembers a few things. He remembers that God has made a covenant with him. He said, God said to David, your descendants will sit on my throne eternally. I will put one of your offspring on my throne. Okay, well, Amnon, it's probably not going to be him. Absalom, he's tainted. Who's it going to be? The promise seems to be threatened. So that's the covenantal side of things. That there seems to be a little bit of question as to whether God is actually going to deliver on the promise that he gave to David. But then think about this from a personal perspective. David has been a victim of his own sin in some ways. 
Maybe best not to describe him as a victim of it. But there are consequences that he is now seeing his sin play out in his family. When you're a parent, you get to see this too. And it's one of the worst feelings. When you see how your sin impacts your children and then kind of creates an environment in which they then also sin, you feel that. And it's, it's not necessarily anger, but it's disgust and despair. It's hopelessness because it's like this is the situation that I have made for myself. And now I'm stuck in it. Because if you look at what David would have been thinking, what's he supposed to do? Is he supposed to crush the rebellion? That would involve killing his son. And he already feels responsible for the situation that his son is in because of his own cycle of sexual violence. Is he supposed to just abdicate? but then give up on the promise that God has given him and flee? He can't do that either. It's a lose-lose. And in all of this, he is crying out to God, almost like, God, do you not see this? Let me update you on the situation here. All of this is happening, and I don't know what to do. And I'm tempted I'm tempted to believe the many. I'm tempted to believe that there is no salvation for me in you because it doesn't look like it. I'm here, Lord. Why aren't you doing something? Why is nothing happening? I'm tempted to believe that. And this is where I want to pause for a minute because I think we all feel that at times. We all feel that, is it really worth it for me to believe? Is it worth worth the cost? Is it worth me letting go of different ways to save myself or to produce my own kingdom? Is it worth it? Because it doesn't feel like it all the time. And even though we feel that way, I I just want to hit pause on that instinct to kind of like immediately go to, oh, there's no salvation for me in God. And I want to remind us of our rules and first remember you are not David, but Jesus is. Jesus would have been taught this prayer from a little boy. He would have grown up in a world where he knew that he was a descendant of David He was a son of David. As he entered his public ministry, think about Jesus' life. What happened? What kind of characterized his public ministry was that as he went teaching and as he went healing, trouble went with him and followed him and pursued him. And the longer he went towards the fulfillment of his ministry, which was just happened to be Jerusalem, more rose up. Many, many, many. And you can see that even as we get to the, the culmination when he's getting ready to be crucified. 
and he's being mocked by the guards. Say, if you're the son of God, tell him to come and save you. There is no salvation for you in God, Jesus. You've wasted your life, and now you're going to die a futile death. For us, as we see Jesus as the fulfillment of this promise, as the disciples would have had their hopes in Jesus being the fulfillment of this promise, that moment when Jesus is on the cross, it's the worst possible thing that could have ever happened in the history of the world. Because the one who all of our hopes for salvation were entrusted to seemed like he was defeated. There's no salvation for him and God. So that's the restless world that we live in. As we go into this world as people who belong to God by faith in Jesus, we belong in his kingdom. And as the kingdom kind of continues to bump up against friction in this world, there's going to be opposition. And so individual Christians, but the church as a whole, no matter where it is, will meet opposition. And it'll take different shapes and it'll look differently, but there will be opposition. And that opposition always wants you to believe that God is a liar, that he will not save you. Maybe that he can't save you. Maybe he doesn't want to save you. Maybe that he just won't save you. But they want you to believe, the opposition wants you to believe there is no salvation for you in God. So in the psalm, we make a really abrupt transition. It's like David has just poured out his soul, and now he's kind of like, okay, let's gain some perspective. Let's think about this. And so you get verse 3, but you, O Lord. It's a reminder of who am I praying to? David stops himself and says, you, O Lord, and then he uses these descriptions of who God is. You are a shield about me. That's a reference back to Abraham. When, Ab- when God tells Abraham, I will be a shield for you. So it's attaching himself again to these promises that God has given his people. You are a shield about me. You've shown your faithfulness to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob. You're a shield about me. You're my glory. You are my glory. The king of Israel says, you, Lord, are my glory. Here's why that's important. Here's what it, I, I love this, because David's writing this in retrospect, and so I think when we read it, we're like, oh, David was awesome. He was like this really strong believer. And he just like was stoic in the face of opposition. And he like could just create faith in himself just like that. Well, let's read what actually happened. Because David's human, just like us. As David is being pursued, and as he's fleeing out of Jerusalem, there's this, it's almost funny if it weren't real, but there's this kind of 
almost Gollum-like figure who's chasing him and following him and is just like throwing rocks at him as he goes. And then there's no more rocks, so he starts throwing mud and just like yelling curses. And here's what Here's how the author kind of summarizes David's experience as this is happening, as he's fleeing, right? That's the occasion for the psalm. This is in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, so he's climbing up out of Jerusalem, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. This is a king. It's a king who has lost every shred of earthly dignity and glory that he has. He's barefoot. He's hiding his head. He's covered in bruises from the rocks and mud from the mud that's being thrown on him. Worse than that, all of his people, all of his loyal people are also being pelted with rocks and weeping. The glory of the king of Israel has completely departed. So his experience is one of despair. And yet in retrospect, when he looks back on this, he says, you, Lord, are my glory. Here's why that's important. The glory of the Lord, remember Psalm 2, is with him in the heavens. When the nations rage and the people plot in vain, as they are doing here, the Lord laughs. His glory is not threatened. When David places his glory and entrusts it to the glory of the Lord, he's saying this is untouchable. It's imperishable. It's eternal glory. You are my glory. And you are the lifter of my head. Again, I think when I'm reading this, it's really easy for me to look at David with some awe. But the grammar is really important here. Because David is not lifting his own head. David doesn't lift his own head by some inner strength and discipline that he has in order to then put his trust in the Lord. David, looking back on these events, he says, no, you were the one who lifted my head. My very ability to see past my circumstances right now was given to me by you, the lifter of my head. That is such amazing news for us. Because what it means is that for those of us who are weak, for those of us who are failures, for those of us who are spiritual degenerates, it doesn't come from us. And the Lord lifts our head. Whose head can he not lift? He can lift your head. He is the one who lifts it. And in response, David cries aloud. This is 
real suffering. It's not glossed over. It's not spiritualized. It's not stoic. In his despair, he cries out to the Lord. He goes to the Lord in prayer. And it's from that place of despair that the Lord answers him from his holy hill. Think about how this worked out in Jesus' life. Right? He enters Jerusalem instead of fleeing from it. He's not running away from the trouble. He's running towards it. He's riding in on a donkey. He's being mocked and jeered, abandoned, betrayed. And in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wants his disciples to help him, to lift his head, as it were. Just like Moses was dependent on the Israelites to lift his arms as he's interceding for for Israel to God. Jesus says, help me stay awake. Help me in my weakness. And they fall asleep. And Jesus cries out to the Lord. And the answer that he receives from the holy hill is different than the answer that David receives. David receives instructions on what to do. Go, send your friend into the court. Help him undermine the plans that are happening there. And he does. But Jesus, he receives silence that is to be taken as a no. He prays to God, Lord, if there's any way for me not to drink this cup, Please show it to me. And that silence is a reminder to Jesus of the plan that came from eternity, from that holy hill, for Jesus to offer himself as a sacrifice. And that this is the way. And so Jesus also receives an answer, but it's a different answer than what David receives. Now we're going to look at the gift of rest. So that's the God of rest. We're looking at the gift of rest. In verse 5, David says that he lay down and slept. So here's, here's kind of how this works. There's this trajectory of prayer, calling out in despair, and then an answering. And then based on that answer, David takes steps of faith. He sends his friend back into hostile territory and he's basically saying like, okay, you go and undermine their plan and I'm depending on you. Well, that was a huge risk because that friend could have betrayed him just like that. Like David's letting go of control here. He's trusting God and the wisdom that God has given him in this impossible circumstance and he's letting go of control. And the next thing that he does to show us that he has been given this gift is that he lays down and he sleeps. And then he wakes up. How is he able to wake up? Because the Lord sustained him. Okay, before we talk about Jesus, I want to talk about us. 
It's out of order, I know. But I want to talk about something that I know from my experience is that sleep often is hard to come by. I'm sure all of you have had a night where you spent awake when you wanted to be asleep because you were worried or you were in pain or you were anxious. And it is some of the worst feeling that you can possibly have because all you want, all you need is just sleep and yet you can't have it because your heart is restless and it's yearning and it's striving and it's anxious. And here is what I think we can learn from this. And this doesn't happen perfectly. We're not in a perfect world where other things don't impact our sleep too. But sometimes we don't sleep because we don't pray. Sometimes we think that prayer is actually a waste of time. Sometimes when we do pray, we don't like what we hear. And a lot of the time, that's because we are worried and we are working for a kingdom that is our own. Not a kingdom that belongs to Jesus. Because if we were worried and working about a kingdom that belongs to Jesus, we would remind ourselves, he is the one that accomplishes this. He is the sovereign one. He is the responsible one. And immediately, when you're able to orient yourselves into his kingdom, there's rest that belongs to you there. But if you are building and controlling and working in a kingdom that you're sovereign over, then the opposition is insurmountable, and you should not sleep. Because to sleep would give them the upper hand. To sleep means that somebody else is in control, and you can't trust it. And so you see this then perfected, of course, in Jesus. But instead of sleep, he gives up his life. It is the fulfillment of how sleep is being used poetically here. It's a letting go. It's a trusting that whatever happens will happen. For sleep, it's for a short amount of time. Jesus gave his life into the Father's hands. He said, I trust you. And just like David woke up, Jesus resurrected. And this is why there's rest in his kingdom. There's rest in his kingdom because that gift, the gift of the resurrection, becomes your resurrection. The worst thing that could have possibly happened, happened. And then Jesus rose again. And it completely defeated all the opposition when he did. As soon as Jesus woke from his sleep, that moment, that very second in time, is when all of his enemies were struck on the cheek. 
It's when the enemies of the anointed one were made to be toothless. I love that image. Because it reminds me of a baby who doesn't have teeth yet. It's like you can put your finger in their mouth and they'll just kind of gum it. And it's harmless. It's kind of cute. That is what the most powerful enemies of God have been rendered by the resurrection. Toothless. They cannot harm you. They can just chew on your finger a little bit. So this conclusion of the psalm is this rising up. Pay attention to that language. Many are rising up. Many are rising up. One lays down to sleep. One awakes. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So the gift of rest is the gift of salvation. And it's God's. And he has risen up against all. And then the prayer concludes with a desire for the blessing to be on the people. You belong to Jesus. People, plural, anointed, has a congregation. David had his men. He's asking now that the Lord's blessing would go on them too, vicariously through David. And Jesus, dying our death, raising for us, pours out his blessing on his people. And so as we wait for the fulfillment, when Jesus comes back and when we see, when we don't just have to believe that the enemies are toothless, but when we see just how toothless they are, we're waiting for that. As we wait, we receive the blessing of Jesus. This is really important. Because you can think that the blessing of Jesus is circumstantial. You can think that it has to do with material possessions. You can think that it has to do with the quality of life that you have. But Jesus was very clear with his disciples. So clear that he demonstrated it. He said, here is my blessing. And he breathed on them. And he was foreshadowing what he would ultimately do to all of his people, which is as he ascended to the right hand of the Father from the holy hill, from Mount Zion, he sends the Spirit to be on his people. And it's the Spirit that comforts us. It's the Spirit that lifts up our head. It's the Spirit that helps us cry out to God. It's the Spirit that gives us belief It's the spirit that sustains that belief. It's the spirit that empowers the people of God to follow Jesus, to meet him in the midst of a restless world, and to rest in God's salvation. Please pray with me. Let's ask for the spirit. Let's ask for the blessing of God to come upon us from this psalm. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you that you come to us in ways that we can understand you. We thank you that you have 
oriented us to your plan to redeem this world, to redeem everything, to put it under the subjection of your son, that you have opened our eyes to who he is. Lord, and I ask that we would continue to believe that. Lord, and I pray for anyone here who is still working for their own kingdom, who's still restless with building it and preserving it and protecting it. Lord, I ask that you would give your spirit and help them see your kingdom. Help them see your salvation. Lift up their heads, Lord, to you. Bring them to you. Call them to you. And help them find the rest that you give to all of the people who are trusting in Jesus. God, we ask that we would go out from this place this morning and that we would remember what you have promised us, what you have given us, and that we would give you thanks, Lord, for all of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.